It's not hard to be happy when things go our way, right? Like when finances are plentiful, when our relationships are thriving, when our health is better than ever. Those are times when it's pretty easy to find happiness. But what about the times and the seasons of loss and grieving and despair? It's not easy to be happy in those times, but the good news is Jesus gives us something far more valuable than happiness in those times. He offers us joy and joy in the midst, right in the middle of those seasons of loss and despair. I'm Alan Arnold. You're listening to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. And in today's episode, a special treat for you, we have Stacy Eldridge addressing how we can move from sorrow to joy. Now, the gathering that she spoke to is called Women at the Well, and it's local here at the Outpost. Regularly, we will have women here, and Stacy will spend time talking and teaching to them about various topics. But it's not just for women, it's for all of us. It's for everyone who wants to know how to unlock more joy in our lives. I hope you'll enjoy this message from Stacy Eldridge titled, Sorrow to Joy. If you are in a season or a moment of sorrow or grief, then you will resonate with what C.S. Lewis said in the days after his wife died. He said, part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery shadow, a reflection. The fact that you don't merely suffer, but have to keep on thinking about the fact that you suffer. I not only live each endless day in grief, but live each day thinking about living each day in grief. We have all been there. And some of you listening, some of you sitting here tonight are there now. Sorrow is a heavy thing. When I'm in a place of deep grief or sorrow, going through the necessary motions of the day, it feels like I'm, I'm walking through knee-deep mud. And, and I feel like I've been walking through knee-deep mud because that's exactly what I have been doing. Grief will do that. And in my sorrow and in yours, our tears, they mingle with our gods. As the salty waters flow, the thick mud of grief begins to thin. Life-giving water begins to overwhelm the weighty slough. And though I may be mired in muck, I know I will not remain mired forever. Sorrow will mark me. It will mark you. And in its marking, it can either harden me or soften me, depending on where I turn. May we turn our gaze to Jesus. Because even when I have been, praise God, in the depths of grief from somewhere deeper than the reservoir of my tears, I know that I will not stay down. Because though death will knock me down, I belong to the resurrected one who has knocked death down, dealt a death blow, as it were. Still, one of Jesus' names is the man of sorrows. And surely he above everyone else is acquainted with sorrow, with grief, and with pain. In the place 
that we're in, in this moment of acknowledging that this world we're living in is, is also called the valley of the shadow of death, that we do walk through times of trial and travail, we are called to remember, to remember Jesus and to remember his ultimate victory. Remember the truth. One evening um, after dinner, John and I were talking about our day and the conversation led to where we had been in scripture that morning. And um, it was really interesting to find that we were both in the same chapter of Hebrews that morning. And that one verse had leapt out of the pages to both of us individually. So much so for me that I had written it down on a piece of paper and was about to tape it to our um, bathroom mirror. When some things like that happen, you have to pay attention, right? Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, because... Because of Jesus, for he who promised is faithful. We have hope. We have hope. We have everlasting joy as our inheritance and our future is assured. Just like breathe for a second. Our future is assured. One of Jesus' names, yes, is the man of sorrows. But let us not forget that even as he suffered in the cause of love, it was the joy that was set before him that made him press on. He is a God of joy, deep, profound joy. Nehemiah 8, 10 says, Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God is joyful. He takes delight in the goodness of creation, and he takes delight in you. Joy is the fruit, one of the fruits of the Spirit. And we know that the Spirit that is a fruit of, that Spirit that lives within us, is the Spirit of our Father. He is joy. Zephaniah 3.17 puts it this way, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness, with His love, He will calm all your fears. With his love, he will calm all your fears. I just got to pause there for a moment. With his love, he will calm all my fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. We have a singing God. He sees the end from the beginning. Sometimes I wish I could see the end from the beginning. Sometimes I do. I wish I knew what was going to be happening, just to know, you know, to be prepared, to be braced, to be prepared for those late night phone calls or other harbingers of doom. I often think I would like to know what's coming around the corner, but honestly, the knowledge would be too much for me. I I don't think I could handle it. Because honestly, somehow, 
All of our souls can bear much more, though, than we even imagine as we walk through this valley of the shadow of death. To know in advance might do us in, because in advance, we don't have the grace for it yet. We're going to get it in the moment. Human beings are amazingly resilient people. You look throughout history and see what people live through, dire And it is amazing how resilient they are. They can adjust to circumstances that are horrific. Remember the movie in The Prince of Egypt? It's true that hope is hard to kill. Hope is breath. Hope is life. Giving into despair when hopelessness feels inevitable is the quickest and surest way to a death of body, of soul, and of spirit. I love Emily Dickinson's poem, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. Hope can have a life of its own. And hope resides in us because of what he has done and what he has won for us. And yet, and still, there is grieving to be done. And Jesus will meet you in it. Psalm 56, 8, the psalmist writes, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. Isn't that precious? Have you ever had an experience where you've wiped someone's tears from their eyes? Or or you had someone do it? you. It's the most tender, loving thing. Our tears are like crystal. It's just so intimate and beautiful. Our tears fall and they are treasured by our Father. In biblical times, people treasured their tears as well. They collected them in bottles. They were the heart of life. They were the sacred tears shed in sorrow and the joyful tears shed in celebration, the alpha and omega of life, the alpha and omega of a life fully lived. Jesus collects them all for us. I wonder how big those bottles are. I know that sometimes the alpha and the omega of life can feel too much to bear, especially in a time of grief. Sometimes a distrust of God keep in in a time of sorrow and loss. I'm deciding whether to say this next sentence or not because I can't say it without crying. But for me, the seeds of temptation to distrust the heart of God were planted in my grandson's grave. And we have the choice to make. We have the choice to hope or to despair. We have the choice to be hardened by it or softened through it. We have the choice to seek God in it or to blame him for it. Let's seek him in it. Let's seek him in it. One will lead to life and the other to death. Because Jesus, we have the supernatural and totally reasonable reason to say in every moment of our lives, 
this crazy sentence that it is well. It is well. That's the supernatural life of believer whose eyes are no longer pinned to the miry muck or the sorrow or the very real grief, even in the midst of that, by the grace of God within us, is reaching up and taking hold of the truth that Jesus is faithful, that his promises are true, that we have a future that is good, and that because of him, life wins. Life wins. Some of you are in tough years. There were some tough years for another man. He was a successful lawyer and a successful businessman in Chicago. And then his beloved son got pneumonia and died. And he grieved. And then later that same year, his business went bankrupt and he lost everything in a fire. And then two years after that, His family did an ocean liner trip from the United States over to England and halfway across the ship collided with another and within nine minutes went down. He received a telegram nine days later from his wife telling him that though she had survived, their four daughters had not. In 1873, Horatio Spafford got on the next ship to sail to meet with his wife. And as that ship sailed across the sea, the captain slowed the ship down at the same exact spot that the previous ship had gone down. And it paused there to wait, to remember the souls that were lost. And you know what he did. This man sat on the deck and grieved for his family. And he penned these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. His soul was held. His anchor was secure because his hope was well-placed. Though the winds and waves had come that would have taken most of us down, swamped in the cold waters of death, Horatio knew what we know too, what we can know, that no matter what, that seriously, no matter what, no matter what comes, a greater good is coming. It's coming. It can be well with my soul. It can be well with our soul. Matthew 7, 25 says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Oh, to have our lives founded on the rock because the winds come. Even so, even so, Because of Jesus, we can say, it is well with my soul. And because of that, we can stand against the accusation screaming at us that it is not well with our souls. No, we get to say, ah, you're wrong. We can stand with a holy defiance that says, even in the midst, I will be joyful. 
And let me just pause there to say that joy is not the same thing as happiness. Okay. I'm not saying that no matter what comes, we're singing happy songs and skipping around the garden all day long. That's not what God calls us to. That's not what he means when he tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Joy is tethered to eternity. That is the anchor within the veil. There are literally hundreds of verses about possessing joy, even in the midst of the whatever may be going on. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God goes on. He commands all people everywhere. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. He even commands the natural world to be joyful. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And again, he isn't commanding us to sing and skip around the garden and deny the sorrow of living in a broken world. He's saying that joy is something else altogether rooted in the immovability, the intransigence, the steadfastness, the unwavering nature and character of our faithful gods. We can have joy when we remember that our God is victorious. He is victorious, and in Him, so are we, no matter what. I kind of just like saying it like that, you know? Jesus was and is victorious, and because we live in His victory, there is nothing that can overcome our lives, nothing. We will be tested. We will have times when we feel overcome. We will know defeat, and we will know failure, and we will know disappointment. But failure and defeat, sorrow and pain, loss and despair do not have the final word over our lives. Only Jesus does. We will overcome. And when we proclaim in the midst of despair that he is good, we've overcome already. Because of Jesus, We have a reason to be thankful. Joy will follow. That's how it works. Thankful first, and then comes the joy. One morning, after a a wakeful night, when I finally surrendered to the prospect of a sleep-deprived day and got out of bed, I kind of did an inventory on my own soul. I checked in with myself because I was feeling so, so heavy. And um, I wanted to see where, if anywhere, I was experiencing joy in my life. And if I was, it was so far below the waterline that it didn't register on my whatever registers things. (laughs) I decided to take stock and in the clear light of day, take stock of what my worries were, knowing that The sunshine melts the mountains of the night. What were the thieves that were robbing me of my joy? My list began. It centered around personal failures and pain. I wasn't making these things up either. These real things. Personal pain, failures, and it quickly moved to relational heartache and struggles. Sprinkled in there were some financial issues. And I wrote out my list in the journal. And as the list grew, I felt justified in my lack of joy. I I said out loud, who could have joy with all this going on? See? It felt kind of relieving to make my list. I kind of felt 
mm, the satisfying pull of an unholy indulgence. Like I could tell that it was feeling good in a way that wasn't good at all. And then from somewhere deeper inside, as I'm still contemplating who could blame me, something rose up inside me and said, hooey. Called it nonsense. In that moment, the Spirit reminded me that I have much, much more to be thankful for. The gaze of my heart was being sucked into the very real worries and disappointments of my life, like a tar-filled magnet. It was black, sticky, thick. And in order to become free of it, I needed to make another list. A list of the many things I had to be grateful for. So I did. And it was while meditating on these things that I could begin to feel like the sticky stuff of circumstantial sadness thin, lose its grip. Here's what I am learning. A grateful heart is a heart that is free. An ungrateful heart is a heart that is bound. Gratitude inevitably leads to freedom. The root word for gratitude is gratis. It means freedom. Gratis means freedom. It also means gratitude. Now, if the two words are linked etymologically, doesn't it make sense that they would have a same root spiritually? When we cultivate hearts, bent towards seeing the good things that we've been giving, it frees us from a sludge of negativity so that we can experience joy. God created us to be a thankful and joyful people. He formed us so intentionally, actually, that joy will not flourish in our hearts unless we're in a thankful place. God wired our brains in such a way that it's impossible to feel joy without a posture of gratitude. This is crazy to me. He's just so fabulous the way he thinks these things through. There's research that backs it up. Here's one from the Journal of Cerebral Cortex. Gratitude stimulates the hypothalamus, a key part of the brain that regulates stress, and the ventral tegmental area, part of our reward circuitry, that produces the sensation of pleasure. So thankfulness sends the happy things so that we feel pleasure. Being thankful comes first. Then comes the feelings. The feelings of joy don't happen. They're not stimulated unless it's in this soil that's rich with a, a cultivated heart of gratitude. This is why he like tells us to do this. He's so smart. We're called to be thankful in everything. We're not called to be thankful for everything. That's a really important distinction. People get tripped up on that. This terrible thing happened, and I guess I'm supposed to thank God for it. No. Even in these things, there's a reason to be thankful. And we have to be. If we want to experience the deep joy that is meant to be ours in the very center of our being in every situation of our lives, be it a season of sorrow or a season of celebration, because thankfulness is the key that opens the door to the joy, to the life that we're meant to walk in. A grateful heart is a heart that is free. An ungrateful heart is a heart that is bound.
And if you need a visual for that, picture Eeyore. Or Puddleglum, if you read The Silver Chair. Neither of those um, fictional characters see the good, but only the possibility for the worst at all times. Disaster not only looms, but is, is not, it's probably going to happen in the next moment. And their fictional feet are, are bound to the ground with a heaviness that chains. I read them and I see myself in them. To be free, I need to look back at my life and at the lives of others and remember the faithfulness of God. That sometimes it might feel like it would take a miracle to be lifted out of a mire of worry and transferred to a place of gratefulness. Most often the choice is ours to make. In 1,000 Gifts, Anne Voskamp wrote, Thanksgiving always precedes the miracle. Sometimes Thanksgiving is the miracle. And we can ask Jesus for it. We can't gut this thing out. We're not meant to. The Holy Spirit living inside of us and sometimes the very best and deepest, truest prayer that we can pray, and I've said this before, is simply, Jesus, come help. Gratitude is the key, friends. Gratitude unlocks joy. And to be grateful, we have to remember what we're grateful for. We are grateful because we have been rescued. John and I had the privilege of visiting Normandy last summer. It really was a pilgrimage for us to the American landing sites of Omaha beaches and Utah beaches. We went to the cliffs of Point de Hoc. We spent a long time at the American cemetery walking among the thousands of crosses and stars. We walked in silence. We walked in reverence. It was a holy pilgrimage where we went to pay our respects to the men and women who so valiantly fought for the freedom of Europe. So many, so very many had given the ultimate sacrifice of their lives. There are 9,000 grave sites at the American cemetery alone, but 20,000 Americans perished in that invasion. The people of Normandy remember they honor the sacrifice of the Allied forces. Thousands of young people gave their lives for a people they didn't even know to fight for the overthrow of evil. Some restaurants have signs literally in front that proclaim, welcome to our liberators. 70 years later, in the schools, the children yearly take field trips to one of the sites, to the museum or to the cemeteries to honor the fallen and to never forget what was sacrificed on their behalf. And the result of their remembering is gratefulness. All the people are so thankful. The air is thick with it. Remembering the goodness of God in the midst of the battle, in the midst of suffering, loss, and sorrow bears the fruit of a gratitude and a freedom of heart that is tangible. It made me think of the verse from the book of Joel, tell these stories to your children. In Normandy, they do. 
and beautiful memorials that honor and remember the landscapes, dot the landscape, many of them with the phrase that say, lest we forget. Oh, gals, lest we forget. It's a little how the Jewish people set up stones of remembrance throughout the Old Testament, markers to remind them of the faithfulness of God and his intervention. We need reminders like these in our lives so that we can seek to cultivate joy in the midst of sorrow. God has come. He is coming still. And when we remember his faithfulness in the past, it gives us the courage to believe that the one who says he never changes will be faithful in our present situation and in our future and in the future of those we love. Where has Jesus come for you? Where has he come through for you? Do you remember? Remembering fertilizes our hope and we need hope. It burgeons our faith. It strengthens our belief in the promises of God that he is good and that he is for us. Remembering fuels our joy, even when we're surrounded by thieves that want to steal it. Sometimes being a joyful person in the midst of this world, this crazy world, feels impossible. Well then, let the impossible commence. Though it is impossible for man, nothing is impossible for God. Because one of the secrets that we already know to being defiantly joyful is that it has absolutely nothing to do with the circumstances that are going on in our life, in our loved one's lives, or in our world. And defiant joy, this posture of unwavering joy, it's not dependent upon feeling happy. Let that be freed. Defiant joy is based solely, 100% on the victory of Jesus Christ and all that he has won for us by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It rests upon the fact that you are utterly and completely loved right now. In Christ, your life is undefeatable. It is victorious. You are victorious. Worry, fear, panic, dread, none of them get to hold your heart hostage in their vice grip. Your heart is held safely in the hands of your faithful God who promises you that a life of unending joy is your inheritance. It is coming. Jesus led the way. And though the way often includes disappointment, pain, betrayal, and loss, none of them get to have the final say. None of them get to have the final say. Only God has the final say over your life. Your future is secure. Your father is faithful. His promises are true. The unseen world is a far more reliable anchor than the seen one. Your trustworthy God holds you in all you love, and you can choose to be immensely and always grateful for that. And gratefulness is the breeding ground of joy. We received an urgent request for prayer and a phone call a few years ago from a woman whose brother is a missionary in Afghanistan. 
he had called her because his village had just been overrun by ISIS. And the militant fanatics were going house to house to where Christians lived and pulling them out into the streets. The children were being brought forward and commanded to denounce Christ or be killed. At the time of her brother's call, no child had renounced Christ. And instead they had been martyred in front of their parents. And he didn't call asking for prayer that he would be passed over or spared. He called to ask for prayer that if his time came, when it came, that he would have the courage to not falter, but to fix his gaze on Jesus and possess the same courage <coughs> that these children did. Like Horatio Spafford. Our anchor, our hope, is held secure within the veil where our Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And this man knew the children knew, the parents knew, the martyrs and all the saints that have gone before us knew that they would not die, but they would live. That like Jesus, no one could take their lives away from them. No one could steal their hope. and No one could kill their everlasting joy. Like them, the ones that were lost and the ones who continue to live with the loss we can sing with them, it is well with my soul. And we can sing it defiantly. Fix your gaze on Jesus, come hell or high water. Fix your hope on the goodness that is promised to us. It will save us in our times of trouble that will surely come. Remember the promise of Jesus. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Remember your rescue. Remember the victory won. Remember the reunion that is coming when Jesus makes all things new. You've been listening to Stacy Eldridge and a message that helps us move from sorrow to joy. I'm Alan Arnold. This is the Ransom Heart Podcast. And I hope you'll join us next week when we kick off a brand new series. This will be a conversation with John Eldridge and many of the Ransom Heart team on a topic that we call the world. How do we live intimately with God and authentically in the world around us? How do we hold on to our beliefs? How do we protect and awaken our heart? How do we remain true within all the distractions, all the disruptions of the world? It's a fascinating series and it all begins next week. So I hope to see you then on the Ransomed Heart Podcast.